Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's episode is brought to you by TRX Dinosaurs. They have innovative puppets, animatronics, and posable dinosaur sculptures. And you can learn more at trxdinosaurs.com. And by the Royal Tyrrell Museum. Every year they host experts from around the world to present the latest research happening in the field of paleontology. You can get more information at tyrrellmuseum.com and view previous speakers on YouTube. This week we have an interview with Sabre Moore from the Carter County Dinosaur Museum. We have Dinosaur of the Day, Boctrosaurus. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. And this week we would like to thank some of our patrons who contribute to the show to keep us going. And this week they are Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, and Bradley. Yay! Thanks everybody. We really appreciate your support and it really helps us keep this podcast going. So if you want to join this awesome group of people, check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. As a side note, we switched website hosts, so now our website is running much faster, and the map of dinosaur museums is working again, so it is just all around better. You no longer have to wait eight seconds to load. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I Even knowing that the domain was definitely real, when I would try to go to our own site, I would start to feel like, should I just give up on this website? I don't know if it's ever going to load. But now I don't have that problem. It loads pretty quickly. Yep. I know dino.com. <laughs> That's us. Jumping right into the dinosaur news, we've got a new specimen of Archaeopteryx, which was found. And going back a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the Harlem specimen was reassigned to a new species, so it's no longer considered Archaeopteryx. So they were down to 11 specimens, but this paper brings that total back up to two and even dozen. So there you go. If you were sad that the number of Archaeopteryx was decreasing, yeah. it's back to normal. And this is the oldest one found so far, right? Yeah, that's like the beginning of the title of the paper. And speaking of the paper, it was written by Oliver Rauhut and others and published in Pier J. And the specimen that they're talking about was actually privately collected about eight years ago, and they just now described it. I'm not sure exactly when the people researching it found out that it was discovered. Because if it's privately collected, obviously it could just be in some guy's basement or closet or something, and he could be the only one that knows about it. <laughs> Maybe they know the private collector. I think they probably did. It seemed like people found out about it pretty quickly, and it was found in central Bavaria, which is known as the Texas of Germany. <laughs> I, I really enjoy that. that. <laughs> and it's also home to the real Sleeping Beauty castle, the Disney version. New Schwanstein. New no. Schwanstein, yeah. yes. Got it. And also Oktoberfest. It's a pretty great place to visit. Yeah. I really enjoy Munich. it. Yeah, Munich is in there too. Well, that's where Oktoberfest is. Yes. The specimen that they found is pretty much completely articulated. They've got almost every bone, and it's got an especially well-preserved skull that gave the researchers some new information that they couldn't see in the previous finds. 
all of them are pretty smashed. <laughs> so I guess this one was just smashed in a little bit different of a way so they could see the relation between a couple parts of the skull that was usually obliterated. And they also found the claws and wings and tail and everything in between. So it looks really good. Unfortunately, the feathers aren't preserved like some of the other Archaeopteryx finds, but still looks pretty good in the preservation department. I also kind of wonder if they might have been able to see feathers if it was prepared by a professional rather than a private collector, because you never know what kind of things they might have prepared out. Yeah. One cool piece to this specific Archaeopteryx is there was an ammonite in the same piece of fossil, so they could date it pretty accurately. Apparently, ammonite species only last for a couple hundred thousand years. So if you have an ammonite in there, you can identify the rest of the fossil to a much more accurate timing. A lot of times marine fossils are like that. I guess they maybe the ocean is a more competitive place. <laughs> it's interesting because there's so many ammonites out there. Yeah, yeah. Being a vertebrate paleontology fan, I know very little about ammonites, but I guess there are a lot of different versions, if, especially if they were turning over that quickly. Mm -hmm. And like Sabrina said, the title of the paper starts with the oldest Archaeopteryx. The previous oldest Archaeopteryx was about 150 million years old. And this one, I think, pushes that back about 1 million years. So in the paper, they talk about how previously the oldest was the early Tithonian. And now this one is the earliest Tithonian. <laughs> so to me, that's a pretty subtle difference. But I guess since the newest Archaeopteryx found was something like 148 or 149 million years ago, it's a significant increase. It's still a pretty short time period that we've seen them from. And if you're wondering, the Tithonian is the last age of the Jurassic that spans from 145 to 152 million years ago. So this is all kind of in the earlier segment. The researchers also compared the 12 Archaeopteryx specimens, just like a different group of authors did in the previous paper about the Harlem specimen, and they saw more variation than one would expect from a single genus. So they noticed that there were different numbers of teeth. They saw slight differences in the skull. There were pretty significantly different sizes as well. And they hypothesized that this might be from the, some of these Archaeopteryx living on islands. But to me, it sounds like they might be different species. Because in some of the interviews, the authors even made reference to like Galapagos variants of birds which are all considered their own species. They're never just considered, oh, it's the that bird, but it's on the Galapagos. So that makes me think that if they're making that sort of parallel connection, then maybe this should be a different species. But they said that they don't have enough specimens to split out any of these different species or genera because they just have only 12. So if there's a couple that are smaller, they only have a couple of them. It's kind of hard to make that distinction. Makes sense. And if you want to see this new Archaeopteryx, it's already on public display right near where it was discovered in Denkendorf at the Altmultal Dinosaur Museum. I think I got that right. That's one of those that has a lot of outdoor dinosaur recreations. But I guess they must have an indoor area somewhere because I don't think they're displaying this outside. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, it's a little fragile for that. Yeah. We also have another biomechanic dinosaur study, which are some of my favorites. 
This one was written by Bishop and others and published in PLOS One. And what they did was they studied how 12 different ground birds walked or ran or both. (laughs) And when I say ground birds, I'm referring to flightless birds, basically. And they ranged in size from the 47-gram Chinese painted quail. I I didn't realize quail can't fly. I don't know if that's all quail or if it's just this type of quail. I only ever think about quails when I'm thinking about eating quail eggs, so yeah. I know nothing about how they fly. That's true. I know people eat quail and hunt quail, and then, but if, if you're hunting quail and they can't fly, that seems like the easiest bird you could ever hunt, after like a moa, I guess, which went extinct. Turkeys? Turkeys can fly. Oh, true. But yeah, they would probably be pretty easy to hunt too. <laughs> but anyway... That was the smaller end of the spectrum, and then it went all the way up to the 75-kilogram ostrich. I think everybody's familiar with how massive ostriches are. So you get a pretty good range of sizes there, and you could imagine maybe a quail moves a lot differently than an ostrich does, and that's kind of what they were aiming to figure out. So they studied those two dinosaurs slash avian birds, (laughs) (laughs) avian dinosaurs, as well as 10 others including the Australian white ibis. And Bishop told the Guardian that there were literally dozens of ibis living in the waterways around the campus. So we said, right, we'll study a few of you then. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yep. And make do with what you have. Yeah. Why not? There's dozens of them. You might as well put a few into your study. So what they did was they ran these birds around on a track, and they took lots of measurements, including the stride length, the ground reaction force, which is basically the amount of force that the bird is pushing off of the ground with, and they made a computer model of all of these running birds, and (laughs) they called the model Biomechanically Informative Regression-Derived Statistical Model. And I think they only did that because you can turn that into the acronym, the BIRDS model. (laughs) Pretty good. After making their model, they found that body size influences the quote-unquote postural crouch, which affects hip height estimates, as well as quite a few other interesting things. And they also showed that birds have a really smooth transition from running to walking, and there's no big shift in like ground reaction force or stride length when they start running. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past and how it's difficult to define if a bird is walking or running because they just kind of go whichever exact speed they want to go. (laughs) It doesn't really matter that much in terms of efficiency. There isn't like a huge step change as compared to humans, which have this dramatic shift when switching between walking and running. And you've probably felt that if you're jogging versus walking fast. As soon as you start running, it's much more difficult as a human and your feet are really slamming into the ground. It's just a totally different activity. Apparently with birds, it's just kind of this linear thing where the faster they go, it just increases the force steadily. Must be nice. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. All kinds of things feel harder for me when I start running. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If only you were a bird. (laughs) Or had bird legs, I guess. Mm, I don't think I want bird legs. Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) Then you have that weird, like, huge foot that folds in a weird way. Then I end up in Ripley's, believe it or not. Yeah, you need really big shoes, too. 
Ooh, yeah. For all big birds. <laughs> yeah. They also point out that maybe part of this is due to a different center of mass. So just the way our leg hits the ground and where our center of mass is relative to where a bird's is when its leg hits the ground and other little factors. And that could potentially be a problem too with trying to extrapolate this into larger theropods, specifically if you're thinking about non-avian dinosaurs like T-Rex, because their center of mass was in a totally different place too, potentially. So even though a lot of the article is talking about this, really referenced, oh, we can figure out how fast dinosaurs move now, the authors pretty explicitly say, well, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see. They want to do, as always, more research and try to refine this model. More birds. Yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, to me, it seems like they're already studying the largest flightless bird with the ostrich. So I don't know really how much more they can do to try to get more information about how something like a T-Rex or something so much larger would have behaved. Unless we can, like, Evo Devo, a really big, weird, modern bird. (laughs) Massive. (laughs) I thought it was interesting. A lot of the news articles about this story portrayed the birds as brave. Huh. That was at least the headlines. Like, these brave birds did this, and I don't really understand why. That's, yeah, that is really strange. I don't think they were probably not brave at all. I don't know. Like, what? they were probably just being coaxed with food. <laughs> Should have said, like, these unless, hungry birds. <laughs> unless the quail had to run alongside the ostrich, in which case that is brave. Like, yeah. <laughs> Fearing for its own life. I think they did them one at, the t- one at a time, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless they were trying to scare it from behind. But that's not brave either. <laughs> brave would probably be if it was totally still and something startling was happening. Or if it, I guess if it was running towards something dangerous. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's more dumb than brave. And I don't think the researchers would try to test their braveness. <laughs> <laughs> we have some more news on Arizona getting an official state dinosaur. So we mentioned before how 11-year-old Jax Weldon wrote to Governor Doug Ducey to get a state dinosaur, and he did it after hearing that California had made Augustinolophus its state dinosaur. And Jax asked for Sonorosaurus, a sauropod, found in Arizona in 1994. It's actually currently on display at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum in Tucson, if you want to see it. And scientists found three toes. They estimated it was about 50 feet or 15 meters long and weighed 4,000 pounds, about 1,800 kilograms. And apparently lawmakers considered making Sonorosaurus the Arizona state dinosaur back in 1998, but they couldn't quite agree. (laughs) Maybe that's because those estimates are so shaky. Based on just toes. (laughs) Had nothing to do with that. So at the time, a nine-year-old boy pitched the idea, but he pitched that Arizona adopt Dilophosaurus, which also lived in what is now Arizona. Hmm. And lawmakers said that Dilophosaurus wasn't unique to Arizona, whereas Sonorosaurus has only been found in Arizona. But then there was, I guess, disagreement between which two to pick. But Apparently, also, paleontologists from the University of California, Berkeley, had taken Dilophosaurus fossils from the Navajo Reservation without permission, and the bill died in caucus, and now Connecticut has since claimed Dilophosaurus, so. Yeah, it makes sense in Connecticut, because they have all those trackways of Ubrantes, which might be Dilophosaurus. Yeah. I like the name, Sonorosaurus. Yeah, that is a good one. I think there might be other unique dinosaurs to Arizona, too, from that Navajo Reservation. 
Could be. Pick one of those for sure. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's going ahead this time with Sonorosaurus. Or they could just go with T-Rex since I don't think any state has done that. But if they want it to be something that's only been found in Arizona. Yeah, but T-Rex is awesome and no state has it. Mm. <laughs> Not even as a fossil? No, I don't think so. Well, right to Doug Ducey. <laughs> but after Jax has put it on all this work, I yeah. don't know. I don't want to ruin Jack's fun. Plus, I don't know if a T-Rex has ever been found in Arizona. I kind of doubt it. Mm. <laughs> anyway, thanks to Brendan who shared this next one with us via Facebook. Bears Ears National Monument recently lost its protected status, but more fossils from the Triassic period have been found. They didn't find dinosaur bones, actually, but they did find phytosaur fossils, which are crocodile-like animals. And in a press release, they said that the site, quote, may be the densest area of Triassic period fossils in the nation, maybe the world, end quote. So hopefully they'll be able to continue excavating because Triassic fossils, that's, those are hard to find. They are. Although what, I can't remember which period they said was the most underrepresented in North America. I think it was either early or mid-Cretaceous. Oh, really? Yeah. But maybe that, that could be because there is this <laughs> formation in Utah. <laughs> So police were recently dispatched in a Philadelphia suburb when they received a report about a dinosaur on the loose. And they saw someone in a T-Rex costume walking <laughs> their kid to school, so they took a video. And the kid seems to be having a good time. I don't know who would have called that in or why. I, yeah, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous on both counts that somebody called that in and that the police actually responded to it. Must have been a slow day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we heard that Jurassic World 3 is happening. The release date has already been announced. June 11th, 2021. Mark your calendars. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the last chapter of the trilogy, and Colin Trevorrow will write the script with Emily Carmichael, but it's not clear who's going to be the director yet or if the stars are returning, although they probably are. They just still need to work out their contracts. Yeah, man, they really get ahead of the game here. I think they had announced Jurassic World 2 before the first Jurassic World came out also. Oh, or maybe it was remember. right after. I think it was right after. But they did the same thing where they had the date. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's the date in the UK, because this Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is coming out like a week or two sooner in the UK than it does anywhere else. And the US is getting it kind of late. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's three years from now. The reason I say that is because this year, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is coming out on June 7th in the UK, but it's not coming out in the US until June 22nd. So we're going to be waiting around here trying to avoid spoilers for like two weeks. I don't know why they're doing that to us, but it seems like <laughs> they might be setting up to do it again based on that date. It could be that that gives them time to do red carpets in multiple cities. Yeah. That'd I don't be my like guess. it. I don't like it at all. It's like when they delay the Olympics and then you're trying to avoid Twitter because you don't want to know who won. <laughs> Although they were better about that this year. So Jurassic World just needs to get on the ball. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, we've got a little bit of information about some of the dinosaur toys from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And they might give away a little bit of the dinosaurs that we're going to see in that movie. Mattel premiered more toys at Toy Fair, which we didn't hear about until 
in the last couple of days, which is why we didn't talk about it last time. But these include Owen Grady riding a motorbike, a recreation of the gyrosphere that you saw from the trailer, and Blue, as well as the villain dino, the Indoraptor or whatever it's going to be called. I, I think that's what it's going to be called. I don't know. We'll find out. But it has really large claws, and it's black and yellow, and the claws, it has sickle claws. And it looks like it might have feathers on the top of its head and back. It's hard to tell because it's plastic. And it's got red eyes. So this was bound to happen because whenever there's a big dinosaur movie, it seems like more dinosaur media comes out. And also coming out this summer is a new movie called The Jurassic Dead, which features zombie (laughs) dinosaurs. I think we talked about that last year when we listed off all the dinosaur movies slated to release this year. Did we? It sounded vaguely familiar, but also like it could have been something else. We definitely (laughs) did. But I think all we had seen was a poster. Okay. Well, now they have a description. And it says, a unit of mercenaries must team up with a group of tech geek students after America is struck with an EMP attack. Deep in the desert, they find the source of the terror, a mad scientist who has also just created a living dead T-Rex dinosaur, (laughs) one who turns everyone it attacks into a zombie. Now they must scramble to stay alive and save the planet from the ultimate undead predator. And I watched the trailer. It's interesting. (laughs) It shows one medium-sized theropod might have had feathers, but the theropod is, you only see flashes of it, so it's hard to say. Yeah, they don't have Jurassic World money for these huge CGI full dinosaur articulations. Probably going to be a little more Blair Witchish, little glimpses Even here. Even the and Living there. Dead T Rex? I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe they do Seems one. Like it's a central character. Yeah, to I this hope movie. so. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of dinosaur movies, thanks to Anthony who shared a new movie with us. It's really a mockumentary called The Dino Warriors. And it's sort of making fun of dinosaur-themed cartoon shows from the 90s, like Dino Riders. And Anthony, who sent this to us, is a stand-up comedian and also the creator of the mockumentary. Yeah, and this Dino Wars mockumentary came out of a web series that he was doing and turned it into this more film-like thing. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty funny. They have all these uh, interviews with people who were huge Dino Warrior fans. You've got like a burlesque dancer. You've got, uh, I forget what the two people did, but I remember they were eating candy. <laughs> yeah. And really that was into like it. potentially toxic or something. Yeah. It was pretty ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and it's definitely, it's weird because <laughs> we kept waiting for the like actual cartoon to come in. But I guess since it's a mockumentary and it was a little lower budget, he didn't actually do any of the animation but they do have some cool toys and things like that it's some really great artwork in the background there was a lot of attention to detail you could tell yeah and you may have guessed based on the fact that i mentioned a burlesque dancer that <laughs> it's more for an 18 and over kind of audience yeah i don't think there's any nudity but it is like some profanity and stuff like that i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah but definitely well done Only 22 minutes, so it's like watching an episode of a TV show. If you want to check it out, we'll post a link. Yeah, it's pretty dry, kind of like The Office, similar mockumentary style. Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks to Anna, who sent this one to us via Facebook. So Alan Mesquita and his four-year-old son, Nathan, made this short film. We got a lot of dinosaur media today. (laughs) It's called Dinosaur. 
It's an animated dinosaur drama. It's about two minutes long, and it's really well done. They worked with other people to help produce and add music and sound mixing. They give him credits at the end. In the description, Alan says that he was so inspired by his son's drawings that he offered to animate them. And Nathan, the son, loves BBC documentaries about dinosaurs, so they started working on this short film together. And Alan said, quote, Nathan was very clear about the story he wanted to tell and how he wanted it to look. He said he wanted it to be very real, never cartoony. (laughs) I did my best to stay true to his vision, end quote. And so Nathan, the four-year-old, narrates the film, and he talks about different dinosaurs, including Brachiosaurus, T-Rex, Ankylosaurus, Spinosaurus. There's a lot of eating and fighting. And as a spoiler alert, it does not end well for Brachiosaurus. No. But I definitely recommend watching. It's incredibly well done. And yeah, it's amazing how much focus this four-year-old had. Yeah, that's really impressive. Whenever anybody under the age of like five accomplishes something major, it's very impressive to me because I don't think I was doing anything at that age. Yeah, they've got a picture at the end, I think, in the credits where they show Nathan recording and he's on like a step stool. There's a microphone up, up to his mouth and he's got big headphones on. And <laughs> That's great. So continuing on with this theme of dinosaur media, Disney's turning Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur into a TV show. Ooh. Which maybe that doesn't surprise you because it's Marvel. Disney owns Marvel. Yeah, they won't stop. <laughs> the title might change, but it's going to be an animated series. I'm guessing that's because it's easiest to portray the dinosaur that way. And also Luna has a telepathic link to Devil Dinosaur. So that makes sense. There's no word yet on which channel it will air, though. Not too many details yet. They just announced it. Yeah, it makes sense. Plus, I think it was originally a cartoon or a comic. So Yeah, but so was everything Marvel. Oh, good point. Yeah. And it's almost all live action now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, touche. But not that many have dinosaurs. And last in the news, there's another 2D runner game called Dino Run 2, where you and some friends pick dinosaurs and try to outrun other dinosaurs. And each dinosaur has different abilities and racer-like stats and can use different tricks in the levels. And you can also find um, secret eggs and collect DNA in the levels. <laughs> the game was successfully funded on Kickstarter, but there's looks like there's plans to raise more money. And it's not clear yet when it'll be released, but it sounds pretty cute. And before we get into our interview with Sabre Moore, we want to pause for a brief word from our sponsor, TRX Dinosaurs. And as a reminder, they make really cool dinosaur puppets and posable sculpture, as well as some animatronics. And one that I was thinking while we were in the first half of the show here was maybe they could make an Archaeopteryx. Ooh. Because they do a really good job with feathered dinosaurs, and they haven't done any more bird-like ones yet. I think that would be a really great one. And it would be on the smaller side, too. So you could probably just, like, plop it on your desk or put it on a shelf or something. Isn't the Nomangaya one a bird-like dinosaur? It is, but it couldn't fly. I mean, it's oh, I like a velociraptor, you know, it's still mostly leg, whereas Archaeopteryx is probably flying or at least gliding. <laughs> so if you want to get an Archaeopteryx or any other type of dinosaur that you can possibly imagine, since TRX Dinosaurs makes all of their creations to order, you can head over to trxdinosaurs.com and put in what you would like them to make. Possibly an Archaeopteryx. Possibly a Velociraptor. 
or anything else. <laughs> yeah. And on their Instagram, it looks like they're having a lot of fun. There's, <laughs> I really enjoy the post that says they're pack hunters, you see, and it's uh, two velociraptors and they're going after the Nomangaya. <laughs> yeah. I hope we're saying that right. I think it might be Nomingia, but I don't know. I'm sure we'll get a correction one of these days. <laughs> so head over to trxdinosaurs.com or go to Instagram at trxdinosaurs to find out more. And now for our interview with Saber. We're here today with Saber Moore, director at Carter County Museum in Ikawaka, Montana. And since starting work at Carter County Museum, Saber has expanded the museum, worked with other museums for outreach, and established the annual Dino Shindig. So we are excited to talk about all that. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about Carter County Museum? Yes. So the Carter County Museum was founded in 1936 by the Carter County Geological Society, which is a group of amateur paleontologists and archaeologists that had ranches in the area. And they had been finding these bones and these artifacts on their land for years and were learning a little bit about them off and on and wanted to kind of make it into a profession mm -hmm. as far as the town went. And the really interesting thing is that about the time that they were starting to find these items in the early, late 1800s and early 1900s was the time when several big museums were collecting in the area because mm -hmm. Carter County is in southeastern Montana which is in the middle of the Hell Creek Formation. Mm -hmm. And it's a great place for dinosaurs. And it also has a layer of ash from the KPG boundary, the extinction event. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really important uh, area of paleontology as well. And one of the men that was working at the museum of the American Museum of Natural History was Barnum Brown. And he ended up teaching several curatorial techniques about how to excavate and prepare bones to who became our first director, Walter Peck. Cool. Yeah. And they actually, uh, Walter Peck excavated in 1938 the kind of cornerstone dinosaur for Carter County Museum, which is our Edmontosaurus, uh, our duckbill dinosaur. Cool. And his excavation was on a nearby ranch and then they that director passed away and the second director marshall lambert who's also the science teacher mm -hmm. for carter county high school put him together and mounted him in the basement of the high school which was the site of our first museum wow or the museum's first site anyhow and then they moved it to our current building in 1954 was when it was mm -hmm constructed and the 1975 was moved to the current building but the exhibit opening in the high school was covered in part by life magazine <laughs> in 1954 and they wrote an article for their fall edition called the town that hunts bones so there's <laughs> a lot of fun pictures of teachers and students and women in their like sunday best going out and digging up dinosaurs and hauling <laughs> these bones <laughs> that's great <laughs> the fabulous archive <laughs> do you have any of those pictures up on display uh we do yes so we've got them on a slideshow and awesome. then we've got kind of a little history of the edmontosaur uh, as well yeah yeah but that we were the first museum to display dinosaurs in the state and we're the first county museum in the state and that's also thanks to our first director walter who 
was a state or a senator to the state Congress. And mm-hmm. he helped get the county museum levy bill passed so that there was funding in county coffers for people like me to get some salary. <laughs> were there a lot of people in the county back then? There were more people than there is today. So Ekalaka has a total of 350 people in the town mm-hmm. or so as of the 2010 census. And the entire county has about 1,300 people. Back in the 30s and 40s, we had around 2,000. And it peaked at about 5,000 in the 80s in the county. Was there like some mining going on or something or railroad? I timber. So we're in the Custer National Forest. So a lot of timber work. I guess primary industry has always been agriculture. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Particularly what's going on now is really kind of unique you get a lot of the old west here people still have branches and horses and are able to use the land and run their livestock on the land and not have to worry so much about other kinds of development yeah that explains a norwegian connection when we went to ellis (laughs) island they had these ads from different countries that would advertise different states in the u.s and one of them was in norway and it showed like a guy like chopping wood and it was like go to like the american northern midwest (laughs) there's lots of trees to chop down (laughs) and lots of other norwegians (laughs) yeah yeah i'd say it's probably and this is not scientific at all but i would bet that like half of the population can trace their origins back to norway (laughs) (laughs) Probably. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Also, climate-wise, it's yes. probably similar. Not much of a change. It's really, <laughs> really windy. Not as bad as Wyoming, where I'm originally from, but definitely windy, cold. Uh, but you get some really beautiful summers, and I have never seen the stars look so amazing. Yeah, I can night. imagine. Yeah. Not a lot of light pollution out here. <laughs> yeah. And even like in terms of the dinosaur trail, your museum is like especially and city is especially off the beaten path, kind of like in a more untouched kind of pristine environment. It's pretty yes. cool. Yeah, there's uh, 13 other museums on the dinosaur trail in Montana. And we are the only one and actually the only city that's a county seat that's not on a major highway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're two hours from the nearest, uh, I guess, full service hospital is how some people put it, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which is Miles City. <laughs> That's yeah. <beer> as well. <laughs> it, it looks like you were at least an hour away from the freeway, too. Yeah, two hours from the freeway. Oh. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> an hour for some people, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you first get involved with the museum? So I went to college and did my undergraduate degree in history in Montana State University in Bozeman. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I worked on the student newspaper, The Exponent. And one of the gentlemen who actually ended up writing for my section, I was an editor of what was called Distractions for a while. Then we renamed it to a more politically correct term of uh, culture section. (laughs) (laughs) But he did uh, comics and wrote uh, humor articles, and his name was Nathan Carroll. He is the curator for the Carter County Museum now, and he was then. And he was working on his master's degree there, and I was just about to graduate with my undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, you know, you've got a history degree, you've got a minor in American Indian Studies, 
how about you come out to Igalac and take a look at our collection and uh, see if you can do anything about bringing the interpretation up to uh, 21st century standards. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, um, you know, I've heard a lot of stories about Eastern Montana. I, I would like to see it first. You have to, <laughs> before I agree to move there, <laughs> tell me what it's like. So this was in 2013. Uh, that I went to Ekalaka for the first time. Mm-hmm. It was during spring break. And let me tell you, you cannot get a better time to go somewhere the first time because Ekalaka was cold. We got <laughs> there at 1 a.m. because Nate had something to do and we left after dark mm-hmm. from Bozeman. <laughs> it's a six-hour drive. So we finally got in and we stayed with his parents who are amazing people. And I woke up the next morning and Lane, his dad, made us pancakes, and it was just a gorgeous day, the way that the sun lit off of the snow. And then we went to the museum, and it's got this massive tower that's built partially out of sandstone, local sandstone, mm-hmm. but also petrified wood at the top. So there's a crazy amount of petrified wood here in Carter County, and it went into the construction of this building. And so nice. we went into the tower, um, our first day here in Ekalaka. And it was fun to see what people hadn't seen in probably 10, 20 years, having to go a series of ladders to get all the way up to the top part and see some of the old collections that, because when they built the second story of the tower, the second director put in a series of like animal, animal head mounts. So there's a moose up there and a deer, but the door from the second level down into the first level is so small you can't get them out. (laughs) And so no one really knew they were up there. (laughs) They kind of (laughs) forgot about it. And so those were fun to see. Uh, But that was kind of just the beginning of a lot of cool little uh, cherry pick stories that you find in Carter County. And then just the collection itself is amazing. There's history here that goes back comprehensively 80 million years all the way back to the Pierce Shale and when the Western Interior Seaway covered this part of Montana. Mm -hmm. So you've got marine reptiles and then you come up to T-Rexes and Triceratops and mammoths. (laughs) We just got a (laughs) mammoth out of the Powder River this past summer. Uh, But then you come more into my area of expertise and we have quite an amazing collection of Paleo-Indian points. And that was what I was working on, was redoing all the exhibit design to kind of bring it into a cohesive story of the tribes that have been in the area, and also to be a little more culturally sensitive than some points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if it was written in the 50s or 70s, I could see how that might be a problem. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they had done a really good job with it. So it was, they gave me a lot of really fun things to work with, and I had... Uh, the ability to use my degree immediately, which was really surprising. Mm-hmm. So I took a lot of notes, went back to Bozeman, and worked on all of the exhibit text. I did it as my, my final internship for MSU, mm-hmm. for my uh, minor. And my teacher signed off on the text at the end of the year. I graduated and came out to Ekalaka and actually put the exhibits together. And concurrently happening... Uh, Nathan had decided to start this thing called the Dino Shindig. Hmm. It was uh, based off of the Burpee Museum. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Paleo Fest. Yes. Where they have a group of speakers that come in and talk about current topics in paleontology. 
Um, Nate added a bit of a twist onto ours, is that everyone who gave a speech had to say something about how their work related back to Carter County and the area, mm-hmm. which worked out really well because several of our first speakers that first year had crews in the area that were digging up a variety of dinosaurs on different pieces of land. And so they kind of started off with like, hey, uh, fellow community members of Ecolaca, this is what we've really been up to. And so everyone in Ecolaca got to learn what uh, they called them bone diggers. So what these bone diggers <laughs> Paleontologists. And uh, Nate and I, and we had a few other Montana State University students. Uh, Hannah Marvel Pierce did a native species garden that's still in use at the museum today. She was a landscape design student. And then we had Derek Brower, who actually worked on the paper with me, helped build a lot of the shelves at the museum and was kind of our all-around handyman. He also edited a bunch of text. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was Tammy Henneveld, who did the graphic design for the first shindig and continues to do it to this day. Kirsten Johnson, who did a number of videos and our first commercial for the shindig. Mm -hmm. And then we had Steve from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yeah, his name's Steve Hobie, and he's a really interesting character because he double majored in paleontology and theater. Huh, wow. Now he's working on his master's degree in vocal performance in Chicago. <laughs> so he just like rotates back and forth. <laughs> yep. So he was from Carthage College. And he, uh, I remember Steve in particular because he came out, he wasn't from MSU, so we didn't know him prior. Uh, he had been working previously in Ecolaco with Thomas Carr's group from Carthage College. Mm -hmm. And he did not know how to Western dance, but he did know every style of ballroom you can come up with. (laughs) (laughs) So he taught me how to waltz, and I taught him how to do the Western, we call it the Ecolaca two-step, which is just your basic (laughs) (laughs) two-step. And of course, he's ridiculously good at it now. Better than all of us, but... (laughs) He was a fun character. So the group of us started the first annual Dino Shindig. Uh, it ended up, it's always the last weekend of July. Mm-hmm. Uh, we invited, I think it was a group of 12 speakers that first year. We do a pitchfork fondue, which is kind of a speaker appreciation dinner at a local ranch, the Castleberry Ranch. And they put steaks on pitchforks, just like it sounds like. <laughs> and you fry them, <laughs> spread them, and then fry them in a cauldron like literally a cauldron yeah and you get to see that whole thing happening that's what they do for their brandings but they kind of have gotten really good at feeding a bunch of people at once with that so <laughs> we put the first year we had a local band play and they were fantastic uh, foil drive was the name the first year they're now the chalk buttes band mm-hmm. huge hit the second day is the talks and then we have kids activities running at the same time at the museum that evening, there's another dance. We do a big barbecue. And then the next day, we took uh, people who joined our uh, pay dig program out into the field to work on one of our current sites. And anything that they find, uh, we put our name on the little baggie, mm-hmm. uh, their name on the baggie, and then we enter it into the museum collections. And if it's really cool, we'll put it on display with your name. So there's been some, uh, there was a a rib fragment of a triceratops that was found one year and some really interesting finds that are still on display that we do every now and then. 
Nice. Yeah. So that's been really fantastic. And then last year, we won event of the year for the state of Montana at the governor's office on tourism. Oh, yeah. We heard about that. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. I'm pretty proud of it. (laughs) We're one of the first uh, Eastern Montana institutions to win the award. Mm -hmm. And definitely the first one from Eastern Montana in a while. And we were up against other really popular events like the Run to the Pub in Bozeman, which (laughs) is a St. Patrick's Day marathon that turns into a great night for the bars. And gets about 4,000 people at that event in one day. Wow. And that's how, how many people we get at the museum in a year. So <laughs> <laughs> we did pretty well. But the Shindig last year brought nearly 400 people to it. And then in 2017, it brought a total of 465 people just on that day alone. That's on the great. 20- yeah. And considering Ecolac is only about 350 people, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask, was it a good mix of locals and tourists? It was predominantly tourists, actually. So Mm -hmm. there's, I would say, about 20% locals that attend the event, uh, up to probably 30% this year. Mm -hmm. But the dominant by far was uh, out of state. And then Montana was kind of in the middle there of the two. That's great. Yeah. And within, if you count... Friday all the way through Sunday, we, for the first time ever, we partnered with the Medicine Rock State Park and put on a celebratory event because it was the county's 100-year anniversary and the park's uh, 60th anniversary. Um, We put on an event at the Medicine Rocks where the Prior Mountain Boys, which is a drum group from Crow Nation, Mm -hmm. played. And we had one of our speakers talk about the geology, and then Tim Orbaniak from Billings talked about the work he had done on recording all the rock petroglyphs and inscriptions. And between all of those events, the Shindig served 900 people. Wow. Which is an amazing amount. Yeah. Jacked <laughs> out every spot in the park for camping and all 14 hotel rooms in Ekalaka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> None of our speakers stayed in them. Speakers ended up staying with uh, community members. And Jen and I actually, my roommate Jen, uh, housed a total of 13 people at our little tiny house in Ekalaka <laughs> <laughs> for the weekend. But it was really a wonderful experience. That's great. Yeah. So are you already planning for the next year's shindig? We are. We are. This year was a big deal because it was number five. The next year's number six. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're working on getting a band organized and finding speaker rooms a little bit more ahead of time. (laughs) (laughs) But we were at uh, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting in Calgary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jen and I and a couple other members of our uh, volunteer team. And we were contacting speakers and trying to figure out what kind of topics we're going to carry. We're hoping to have a plesiosaur talk because we'll be excavating a plesiosaur next summer. Oh, nice. And just got the mammoths, so we're going to have a talk on mammoths. <laughs> <laughs> so that's me being like, you know, the dinosaurs are cool, but how about we bring in some other topics? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there will be a lot of dinosaur returners as well. Thomas Holtz will be back, uh, Scott Williams from... I guess he was previously from Burpee, but now he is at Museum of the Rockies. We'll have John Scanella. Again, he's a curator of paleontology at the Museum mm-hmm. of the Rockies. 
will be back as well. So it should be should be a great trip. And we always have the director of the Smithsonian, Kirk Johnson, uh, on speed dial. So hopefully <laughs> back again. Because we know in 2019, he's going to be pretty busy with their new opening. Yes. There. Yeah. He's got time now, right? <laughs> he does. You know, that's a year before, so plenty. <laughs> but yeah, we hope for it to be, this gets better and better every year. And I think it's going to be a fanta- another fantastic time. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. And like a lot of different people have heard about it. So. Yes, it just gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> yeah, we'd like to make it eventually. I don't know if we can make it this year or not. Maybe. July 28th and 29th. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Always last weekend, so it should be should be a good time. And even if you can't make it out for the full event, definitely try to make the Pitchfork Fondue and the talks on Saturday. That sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> 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 so... You recently also came back from a trip to Japan, and I know you were there working with other dinosaur museums on outreach. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes. So this was my first trip to Japan, but it's actually part of a two-year ongoing project that's supported by the Japan Foundation. Mm -hmm. And it's called the Kumamoto Montana Natural Science Museum Association. A very long uh, (laughs) name, but it pretty well describes what it is. Kumamoto is the sister state to Montana, actually. It's Mm -hmm. a prefecture in Japan. It's south of Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And I went over there with our sister museum, the Museum of the Rockies, to work with our colleagues who are also member museums of the Kumamoto Montana Association. (laughs) We'll go with that, the shortening of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that includes the Mifune Dinosaur Museum, the Shura Museum, the Kumamoto City Museum, and the Oso Volcano Museum. That's Ooh, a lot. That sounds yes, fun. It is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so all of us pooled our resources and are working together to build a science curriculum that is 11 lessons. There's an opening lesson and a closing lesson, and then three each on paleontology, geology, and astronomy. Mm-hmm. And all of the lessons deal with introducing kids targeted in fifth grade and sixth grade to science subjects that incorporate both Montana and Kumamoto as kind of the base place. So you're learning about science in a world context while also learning about this really cool sister relationship that we have, the sister state thing (laughs) and the museum's relationships and their collaboration as well as the fact that museum collections can really introduce you to history and science and different subjects in a really unique way. Mm -hmm. So far, we toured each other's museums. Our Japanese colleagues came here to see Ikalaka in June, which was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. We revisited the pitchfork fondue and we went and took (laughs) them out to the (laughs) Medicine Rock State Park to actually see some of our stars and they were really thrilled with that and they brought a telescope with them (laughs) and they went and saw Yellowstone with the geologists and learned about the super volcano and And so when I went over there recently I guess just like a week and a half ago now (laughs) (laughs) I got to see the Oso volcano which is a really fascinating volcano that erupted like last October (laughs) and it wasn't a big eruption thankfully but it did do some damage up at the side of the crater itself Mm -hmm. but then I also saw 
the Mifune Dinosaur Museum's collection, and I saw the Goshura Museum sites, and they're on an island, so you have to take a boat to get to the museum, and then all the sites are around the coast. And so when they go and dig up a dinosaur, they actually have to take tide tables with them, (laughs) (laughs) which is amazing, (laughs) because half the time it's underwater. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's so much uh, vegetation over there that you have to really work to get down to the fossil layer mm-hmm. and use all sorts of really high-powered equipment in addition to the tide table and wow. <laughs> your waders. And How do you even find anything in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got some geological records, and then they've actually – dinosaur paleontology in Japan, especially that area of Japan, is relatively brand new. Mm-hmm. So they just discovered – within the last 10 or 15 years, a dinosaur track that they saw on the edge as the tide went out of this island. And so that was kind of the beginning of everything in Goshura. Cool. And they found a uh, carnivore's tooth as well that was there. And just, there's, it's generally kind of like ours fragmented, but uh, in order to get to the rest of it, they really have to work work hard. (laughs) You don't (laughs) We'll move a lot of overburden like Montana. (laughs) (laughs) So we're pretty lucky. But one of our lessons deals with the differences in paleontology and field work in both places. Mm -hmm. But then also the similarities as well. Yeah, those are pretty much opposite ends of the spectrum. The Badlands versus like an island. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. And it's really fascinating to see uh, how science can be practiced in both places and kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah. So that's really, that's been fun to, to learn about, especially me coming from an anthropological, archaeological background. So I've learned more about dinosaurs from our uh, 10-year-old best customer <laughs> than I knew in the last year than I knew in the previous, you know, 20 years combined. So really, <laughs> <laughs> but surely picking it up. <laughs> nice. But it's really a fantastic project. Uh, it will be done the grant cycle ends uh, september 30th mm-hmm. of 2018 but we'll be doing testing in schools in japan and kumamoto in the spring okay. uh, and montana i was just gonna ask yeah where where might we see these <laughs> <laughs> these lessons eventually well eventually we'll uh, i'll be applying to have a educational poster at svp next year in new mexico nice. where we'll present on the topic so we'll see how that goes and many of the authors as possible will be there to answer questions and mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see that goes but that'll be the public reveal you know aside from me talking about it on the show <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah we got the inside scoop <laughs> yeah. <The> first <laughs> awesome and then i read somewhere that you're also working with the museum of the rockies on a mobile science lab yes that is actually called Maya, which is a great acronym. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Much easier. Uh, math and Agriculture in Action. Uh, <laughs> it's a mobile science lab. It's a trunk uh, that goes out to schools. And we collaborated on the trunk together to create a growth series that compares uh, femur lengths of Mayasaura, deer, chickens, and cows. Hmm. So we that's the agriculture connection is to see a lot of people in rural Montana, which was the main target of this uh, lesson plan, Mm -hmm. identify or find it more accessible to be like, oh, yeah, my parents or my 
cousin or my friend raises cattle. And then they can draw comparisons between a black Angus cow, for example, with the dinosaur Myasaur. And the reason why we chose Myasaur is that's Montana's state dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And it also works really well for the name. So <laughs> double there. And because the Museum of the Rockies has one of the most complete uh, Myasaur collections. So they had a baby all the way up to adult uh, femur examples. So they provided the cows for that. Uh, we went out and got the cows and the deer <laughs> and eagle egg. <laughs> Uh, and that helps connect it to the um, ideas of hunting as well. So there's a lot of hunting that goes on around eastern Montana and in Montana as a whole mm-hmm. that is helpful with the deer side of things. And then chickens, a lot of people will raise chickens and they're modern dinosaurs. So, yeah. And kids love learning that, you know, their grandmother's actually a dinosaur farmer. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So their favorite takeaways. <laughs> But the trunk was initially designed for 10th grade classrooms, and it was developed in consultation with uh, both of our museums, but also with the local science and math teachers here in Ekalaka, mm-hmm. Sharon Carroll and Chioko Hamill. And that's the pilot classrooms was Sharon's math classroom, and then Chioko also ran the lesson for science. And what happens is that the trunk it comes to you with all the bones in it, and then you have graphs that you can plot the growth curve on and figure out where each bone fits within the graph. And you measure the bones, learn how to do that, and then label them scientifically. Mm-hmm. And I email you, if you're a teacher, you contact me, and I email you the teacher guide, the student workbook, the inventory, and kind of your introductory to the trunk. Mm-hmm. And the trunk itself... Last year, I drove it around Montana. <laughs> kind of, I would go to a meeting for the museum association. I went to Kalispell, so I drove it and dropped it off in Missoula, and then picked it up on my way back and dropped it off in Billings. And then it's kind of been all over eastern Montana and the rest of Montana as well to places, including Hammond's uh, one-room schoolhouse <laughs> as well. <laughs> Does Ekalaka have a school? It does. So Ekalaka has, uh, we're the county seat, so we have the bigger school. Okay. But again, that's only, there's about 100 students in the whole school system for Ekalaka. So, small. (laughs) So there are several rooms in that schoolhouse. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And that that little schoolhouse is actually, um, it's only for elementary kids, and it's in a different part of the county. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I think 10 kids in that whole school. So very few, but the trunk, when I'm not the one carrying it around, some of our other staff have moved it around and then the teachers will frequently take it to the next teacher. Hmm. They might be going somewhere for a trip to get groceries or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's what's been happening this year. It started off at the Montana Science Educators Conference and has been moving around ever since (laughs) this fall. And I get an email from a teacher every now and then that's like, hey, I'm getting the trunk next. I have it for these dates. Can you email me the workbook? And so I do. <laughs> really fun to let it kind of run around on the state on its yeah. own. And, and the other added effect to that is that while it was initially for 10th grade students, it has been adapted all the way down to kindergarten and up through even some adult education classes. Cool. 
that's because teachers at the same school hear about it from their kids and they want it in their classroom. And so then they kind of take the workbook and adapt it to their curriculum. And so that way it's reached quite a few kids in a lot of school districts. And I'm glad that it's continuing this year as well. Yeah. For adults, do you know what changes in terms of what they're learning? Uh, For adults, they read more of the teacher's guide itself, which includes the scientific debate Mm. on my whether they were endothermic or ectothermic, and mm-hmm. they talk about that more in detail. Sophomores are able to kind of take the three examples and defend whichever side they fall on or whichever side they think that the evidence falls on and have a classroom discussion. But as far as reading the scientific papers themselves, it's a little more difficult at that age. Sure. It was really difficult for me to translate it. <laughs> <laughs> And I worked a lot with the science teacher to be like, what does this mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of terms to know. (laughs) And, you know, frequently paleontologists just make up words. And that's not fair. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, well, there's this Latin word and that Latin word, so I'm just going to smush them together. And then we have a new word. My name and call it good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it, that was our first project with the Museum of the Rockies, our first uh, joint educational project. And the Japan curriculum has been our second one. So we're looking forward to doing more work with them in the future and especially educational wise. Yeah. Both of those sound amazing. Oh, they're fantastic. And I'm looking forward to moving into more um, cultural history lessons as well. So doing a math lesson on atlatls or spear throwers. Mm-hmm. Next goal project. Probably after I Japan one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds cool. I wanted to ask if anybody wanted to get involved with the Carter County Museum, are there volunteer opportunities? Yes. Yes, there are volunteer opportunities, uh, mostly in the summer uh, because the weather is a little bit better and easier to get out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can send me an email uh, and I'll give my contact information to you guys so that you can pass it on. Great. If people are interested, um, they can also contact us on our website, cartercountymuseum.org. Most of our volunteer opportunities are with paleontology. So we have a lot of fossil prep opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's what I like to focus on. But of course, there's field work too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have cataloging. And then I have a, a master's degree in museum studies. So I, I'm really interested in helping people who are looking to be in the museum profession in the future and gain experience that way. We do exhibit design, and if anybody wants to uh, learn how to do paperwork really well, I can help with that, which is not (laughs) exciting. But (laughs) But important. (laughs) But really useful, yes. (laughs) Cool. But yeah, most of our opportunities are in the summer. Uh, Again, Ekalaka is very isolated. It's worth it when you get here, but we are four hours from Billings Airport and three hours from Rapid City. Mm. And those are the two that you would fly into (laughs) if you're flying. If you're driving, there's a lot more opportunity. (laughs) And you guys are actually open year-round, right? We are, yes. So we're open seven days a week from April through the end of November. And then we're open six days a week the rest of the year. So That is great. Really quite fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. That's more than a lot of museums in major cities. Yes, it is. We have one full-time staff and then three part-time and uh, two summer internships that are paid Mm, and two uh, project positions 
that are paid on a project basis. And then, of course, a number of volunteer positions as well. That's pretty big. Yeah, we do. We do pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're very fortunate to have the help of the community. And then the community has really been fantastic in housing our volunteers, feeding our volunteers, and making everyone feel welcome. That's great. Yeah. So just to follow up, the best place for people to find out more about the museum then is cartercountymuseum.org? That's correct. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Saber. This has been great to hear about all these, especially the educational outreach programs. Those sound fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Thank you for having me on. This was a fun conversation. Thanks again, Saber. It was really great to talk to you and hear more about what's going on with Carter County Museum. Yeah, we really need to make it to that dino shindig one of these years. Mm -hmm. And before we get into our dinosaur of the day, we're going to take a quick pause for the Royal Tyrrell Museum. And as you've probably heard, the Royal Tyrrell Museum has their annual speaker series going on right now, which brings all sorts of paleontologists to the museum to discuss some of the most interesting and latest topics in paleontology, and specifically with the goal of sharing that research with the public. This is very fitting for the Royal Tyrrell Museum, since they're the only museum in Canada dedicated exclusively to the science of paleontology. Yes, and these speaker series are held on Thursdays at 11 a.m. in the Museum Auditorium from now until April, and they post all their videos through their channel on YouTube if you can't make it in person. So if you're in the area, on March 8th, Justin Lemberg from the University of Chicago will be talking about a tale of convergent evolution over 375 million years. And past topics, which will eventually be up on the YouTube channel, include the mass extinction in the early Jurassic and insights from China on the dinosaurian origin of birds. Yeah, some good stuff. I really wonder what convergent evolution he's going to talk about because over 375 million years is a very long time frame. It <laughs> could include a lot of different animals. That's true. That's a good point. We'll have to watch it once it's on YouTube to find out. And if you want to get more information about the speaker series, you can head to tyrolmuseum.com or you can search for them on YouTube or grab the link from our show notes. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Bactrosaurus, which was a request from Patrick via Patreon. So thanks. It was a hadrosauroid that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now China, and its name means club lizard. The name refers to the club-shaped neural spines on some of the vertebrae. It was described by Charles W. Gilmore in 1933, and it's one of the earliest known hadrosauroids from Asia. Gilmore had found six specimens in a bone bed. This included skull fragments and postcranial fossils, including limbs and pelvis, have been found from at least 12 individuals, both juveniles and adults, in this bone bed. Nice. Yeah. The type species is Bactrosaurus johnsoni. There's another species, Bactrosaurus caesulimensis, which is also known as Cyanodon caesulimensis, but that's a dubious genus based on partial fragments. It was described by Edward Drinker Cope in 1874. He named a lot of dubious genera. Yeah. (laughs) There's also a third species, Bactrosaurus prinatii, which was originally Tanius prinatii, but not many bones have been found. Bactrosaurus is about 20 feet or 6 meters long and weighed about 2,400 to 3,300 pounds or 1.1 to 1.5 tons. Originally, it was thought not to have a crest, 
But a later study found what looks like the base of a crest in early development that was partially preserved. A 2003 study found evidence of tumors, both benign and cancerous ones, Oof. in Bactrosaurus skeletons. And they may have been because of environmental factors or genetic. So they were caused by something. Yes. <laughs> and Bactrosaurus couldn't do anything about it. Well, yeah, that's for sure. It's, a, it's hard to treat tumors without thumbs. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. And probably without hands. It might have had hands, hadrosaurid. Yeah, maybe. I was just thinking, you know, over 2,000 pounds, getting into need four leg kind of territory. Mm. But it's hard to say. Could have had those weird hands that also have like hooves on them. And our fun fact of the day is based on the tenant paper that we talked about last week. And that was the paper all about how many different dinosaurs have been discovered and what the kind of rate of discovery is. They point out in the paper that over 900 different dinosaur genera have been discovered, and that includes 325 theropods, 261 sauropodomorphs, and 315 ornithischians. So it's pretty even. I was kind of surprised that all three of those categories were so close, all right around 300, although obviously the sauropods are the lowest. The theropods are the highest. Hmm. <laughs> How interesting. Yeah. And that seems to have kept up, too. The new discoveries, too, are still pretty even between those categories. Anyway, <laughs> that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to join our community, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.